Wow. That'll wake you up. What a beautiful selection. How fitting. And what a beautiful job of uh, playing and singing. Voices. One day, voices that'll be united in praise. And don't worry if you can't sing now, one day you'll be able to. <laughs> and it'll be wonderful to hear the triumphant voices sing honor and glory and power and blessing and strength and wisdom and riches under the Lamb that was slain. Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We who know him now have the privilege of doing so willingly. Uh, one day, every, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Trust you can do so willingly and thankfully now. Now, I have, and Joe might as equally have, the toughest job of the, of the conference, and that is speaking to you after we have had a good meal, and probably both of us feel like maybe relaxing, maybe Joe feels like doing a few laps across uh, the bridge or something, but um, not me. I'd take a few uh, rounds in the, in the recliner. But, um, and then I know that you folks out there probably get the same gravitational pull after you eat like that, but uh, we'll try to do what we can. But I want you to feel free to uh, daydream a little bit. And if you are one of those people who likes to daydream with your eyes closed, well, uh, I won't call on you. I probably don't know your name anyway, so, you know, don't worry about it. Joe and I first met, if I recall, years ago at a men's Bible study in Pennsylvania. Those were some tremendous times, uh, very formative in my life. There was a brother there named Clint Irvin, and uh, he was a very unique man. He had worked in Manhattan, Wall Street, and in his own words, he and his wife gave up Wall Street, went to Greenwood Hills Bible Camp and Conference Grounds, and as he said, it was the, the altar upon which my wife and I laid our living sacrifice. And so we went there to serve the Lord, did for a number of years, later moved to Florida, health was bad, had the privilege of speaking at his funeral service, memorial service this, earlier this year man about my age, young man, obviously, and uh, anyway, I, I'll never forget one of the first times we were up there, Joe, I had a friend, uh, two friends of mine, it was kind of a real blessing because these two guys were fairly new to the game, so to speak, and they, they, had, they traveled with me to this Bible study, and at the time, they didn't know anybody, which was kind of neat because they didn't know what was what. Every now and then, um, they would see Clint around the grounds in a golf cart with cleaning supplies and tools because, among other things, you know, he wore a lot of hats. He might be cleaning toilets or fixing a leak or whatever. So towards the end of the week, Clint came in to give us one of his daydreams. Because while Clint would clean toilets and do maintenance and work in the office and whatever else he was called to do around there, he would meditate on the Scripture. 
Well, he came and he gave us one of his daydreams that literally, if you had to be there, but they would transport you into heaven itself. And I'll never forget that one of these men with me, after it was over, because he didn't know a lot about the scripture, a lot about the Bible, and he was meeting all these guys that did, he says, man, I can't believe it. Even the janitor knows more about the scripture than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I told that story at Clint's uh, funeral service. Even the janitor knows more than I do. But um, anyway, you feel free to, to, to meditate because we're going to think about something that's going to take a little bit of a meditation now. We're going to think about the triumph of the Lamb, um, not only over earth, but also in that place we call eternity. I was telling, uh, uh, relating a story to Dave that uh, some of his relatives and others here who related to the Lawson clan. Of course, Fran's here, and I say it's easier to figure who Fran is not related to than who she is related to. But um, years ago at Camp Horizon in Florida, I was asked to speak on the coming again of the Lord during that week I was, and, and uh, Danny and Sharon sang a song called Another Time, Another Place. And I'm going to tell you, it was powerful. And then by the grace of God, I gave a message on the Lord's coming. It was just very unique. But we're going to think about that now, about another time and another place, and what God has prepared for us. We're not told everything about heaven. We're not told everything about eternity. Maybe it's because God wants to retain a few surprises for us. Maybe it's because we can't really take it all in. But we're told enough to give us an idea of what the eternal dwelling place of the people of God is will be like some of the characteristics. And one of the great triumphs of the Lamb is that he will ultimately triumph, triumph over the earth itself. And I believe as we read the scripture and interpret it correctly, that one day the Lord Jesus is coming back not only to receive his church from out of this world and to take us to be with him there, but he's also going to come back to this planet and Revelation chapter 19 gives us a glimpse of the one who comes. In verse 11, I saw the heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. He treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The Lord Jesus is coming back one day triumphant over this planet. When the Lord Jesus came the first time, as I mentioned earlier, he humbled himself. It is perhaps a story, and I almost hesitate. I still call myself young, but I know i am got a few years on me, and sometimes terminology to communicate to a generation that when we say story, we're not talking about a fairy tale. We're talking about a biblical, historical account of something. 
Sometimes nowadays when you say story, people think something you've made up or somebody else made up. But the account of the Lord Jesus coming into this world, it's unique in a number of ways. Whoever heard of a king that would come in such a humble manner, without fanfare, without great entourage, without the you know, symphonies of heaven breaking forth, that heaven's legitimate king has now come to the planet. And he didn't come that way. He came humbly, lowly. He was born of average folks, if you will, in a very simple beginnings. You never hear of a king making his entrance in that way. Uh, when the Lord Jesus was here on this planet, to our knowledge, he never owned anything except the clothes on his back. And some of those were given to him. He said himself, the foxes have holes, uh, the birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man doesn't even have anywhere to lay his head. When it came time on, on one occasion to pay a certain temple tax, which he acquiesced to, although for certain reasons he was not obligated to himself, but he acquiesced to, uh, that money had to be got in a rather unique uh, form of ATM in the day, uh, the fish's mouth ATM, you know. So uh, the Lord Jesus came in a very humble way. He died and was buried in a borrowed tomb. But I want to tell you, when he comes again in power and glory, it's going to be different. When he comes again, as, as we read about in Revelation 19, when he comes as King of kings and Lord of lords with the armies of heaven following him, it's going to be different. He's going to come in power and glory. The Scripture says, every eye shall see him. The tribes of the earth shall moan and wail because of him. And so we, we get a glimpse of what it's going to be like when he comes in that way. When he comes, he's going to put down all rebellion at that point. He is going to establish the golden age that the prophets promised from ancient days past. And he's going to rule and reign. His kingdom will flow forth from the very city of Jerusalem from which he was rejected. It is only fitting and only right that from that very place that he was rejected, one day his kingdom upon earth will be established. It is a kingdom that is prophesied throughout the Old Testament prophets. We are given the length of time in Revelation chapter 20, a thousand years. He'll rule and reign for a thousand years. Apparently, as we read, there will be people who will enter into that kingdom that have not been yet transported to heaven, who do not yet have heavenly bodies. We know that at the end of that time in Revelation 20, as hard as it seems for us to conceive, there will be one final rebellion. Satan, who will have been bound for a thousand years, an earth where the curse has at least been either temporarily suspended or partially removed, a heaven on earth, if you will. But even in that environment, the consistency of what is taught in the Word of God will be seen to be true. That people who have a fallen nature affected by sin, there'll be a final rebellion. And ultimately, that rebellion will be put down. 
We read about it in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10. The devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever. There'll be a final judgment that we read about in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11. Only five short verses that give us a description of what that judgment will be. It's a very solemn scene. It's a very serious scene, perhaps one of the most solemn in all of the Word of God. Those that stand before that great white throne judgment at that time are those who have rejected God and rejected His Son. Their fate, if you will, has already been determined, not by what happens after death, but by what happens in life. When you go out of this world, when you breathe your last breath, your fate is sealed. There is no second chance. There is no going back. And the book of Revelation proves to us, and one of the reasons it shows us some of the intense judgments that are in that final phase of judgments, those final series of sevens, is even then, when things happen that are so unmistakably miraculous, 130-pound hailstones from heaven, that men obviously know these things are from heaven and from God. But when the obvious uh, nature of those phenomena happen, and men still not only refuse to repent, as the Scripture says, but blaspheme the God of heaven. Well, there's no other place for those people in the place that has been assigned for all those who reject God and reject His love and reject His Son. There is a sense in which heaven, for those who don't know God, would be a hell. Because if you can't stand being around people who talk about Jesus Christ and sing about Jesus Christ and love the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't want to go to heaven because that's all they're going to do and sing about, and he's going to be the theme of every song and their praise and so on. It would be a miserable place for you if you weren't redeemed, really. And so we read about that judgment. I'll not dwell much more on that, except to pass on to what we find in chapter 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. It is done. 
We begin to get the description following in verse 9. There came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, come here, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. Carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, and having the glory of God. And her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone perhaps a diamond, clear as crystal. It had a wall, great and high, had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Verse 14, the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Verse 18, the building of the wall of it was of jasper. The city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. Verse 21, the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. The street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. The city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it. The Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. The kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. The gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so what do we make of all this when we begin to think about it? I'd like to think first of something that is found in this particular section, because I did say that we're thinking about the triumph of the Lamb. Beginning in chapter 21 in verse 9, Uh, chapter 21 in verse 9, you'll find seven mentions of the Lamb that take us down to chapter 22 and verse 5. I'll just mention them briefly and just comment on them briefly, but just a little something to begin to think about. Chapter 21 and verse 9, There came unto me one of the seven angels and said, Come here, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. Seems to me the first thing that's brought before us in the mention of the bride, the lamb's wife, is the relationship. Here you are at the end of the Bible. Here you are at the end of human and all history. Here you are about to enter into that phase of things that we would refer to as eternity. And it's still about relationship. The relationship that God wants to have with his creation and the relationship that the Lord Jesus wants to have and does establish with his people, the bride. I'm going to show you, he says, the, the, the bride, the lamb's wife. And so the first thing that we have brought before us in this triumph of the lamb is the relationship. Then secondly, in chapter 21 and verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. There was a foundation. Abraham, Abram as he was known, who was called out of 
the country we refer to today as Iraq, the land of the Tigris and the Euphrates, Ur of the Chaldees, uh, Babylon, Mesopotamia, the different names the Scripture uses. What was it that drew him out of that place? We're told in Acts chapter 7, as Stephen is recounting the history of the nation, that the God of glory appeared to Abram when he was dwelling in the land of Mesopotamia. Whatever he saw in God, he turned his back on that advanced civilization of its day and all that was connected with it. And he left that land of the Tigris and the Euphrates. You say, wow, what did he go to? (laughs) Well, he went to a place that God didn't even tell him about. And he promised him something. And Abraham, to him, that promise was so real. The Scripture says Abraham looked for a city that had foundations, whose builder and maker was God. And yet the Scripture records that Abraham, other than a grave to bury his wife, never owned a piece of property, lived in tents, pilgrim, stranger, traveler, alien, on planet earth (laughs) but he looked for a city that had foundation and here we find a city that had foundation founded upon the truth that those 12 apostles would have communicated the doctrine and the truth of the lamb who is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ foundation chapter 21 and verse 22 city had no need of the sun neither the moon to shine and the glory of God did lighten it the lamb is the light there. Oh, let me back up. Verse 22. I saw no temple there, and the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are, are the temple of it, the worship of that place. No need for a temple there. No need for a place in that sense to, to communicate those kind of truths as the temple of old or the tabernacle of old did because the Lamb is there, <laughs> the place of worship. A place, as verse 23 says, of light. The Lamb is the light thereof. Imagine it saying, no need of the sun, no need of the moon, because the glory of God lighted that place. The Lamb is the light thereof. Imagine, no need of the sun, no need of the moon. It's like trying to shine a flashlight up at the sun to see if you can see it. You don't need the sun there because the glory of the Lamb is the light of that place. It's citizenship. In verse 27, one of the things that will make heaven heaven, you know, heaven is a very negative place. We're, not, we're told not only who will be there, but who won't be there. Nothing that defiles. No one that works abomination. No one that makes a lie. But those that are written in the Lamb's book of life. The citizenship of heaven. It's government in verse 1 of chapter 22. A throne of God. There was a river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And then finally, in verse 3. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. Our occupation in heaven You know, when I first got saved, very ignorant of the Bible, didn't know much about Scripture, knew a few stories and basic outlines of things, but really didn't know the Scripture at all. And I got saved, and 
I mean, I knew I was saved. My life was, if you're here tomorrow, you'll hear a little bit about that, or hear a lot about it, but anyway, um, I got saved. Well, I, I just didn't know a lot about Scripture, and so I would meet these old-timers, you know, people that were probably my age now or a little older, but, and, and they would talk about heaven, and they'd be, they'd begin to weep. You know, they, they wanted to go there. You know, I would think, that's okay for you. I mean, you look like you're almost there anyway, you know, but <laughs> I'm young. <laughs> I want to live. I mean, I, I'm saved now. I know what it means now to live, you see, and I want to go out and live. I don't want to go to heaven. I mean, besides, I mean, the only concept of heaven I had was if you're going to be floating around on a cloud playing a harp, I mean, after the first couple of thousand years, that's going to get a little bit old. As I said, I was ignorant. As the God's salvation began to transform my mind a little bit, I began to understand a little bit more, and the fog began to clear, uh, I began to realize, just look at the world that we live in. I mean, even though it has been damaged, because the Scripture says even the creation groans and travails waiting to be delivered, even though it's been damaged, what an incredible place. Whether it's through the microscope, whether it's through the telescope, whether it's looking at the mountains or the sea, the human body, it's incredible. The mind of God that created such complexity, such diversity, it's just amazing, isn't it? And I began to think, the God who created all this Whatever heaven is going to be in eternity, it's not going to be boring. <laughs> the mind of God, as, it's, as we're able to appreciate it with a new body and a transformed self that is adapted to that environment, it's going to be fantastic, isn't it? His servants will serve Him. And I can say this too, that no matter what it is, for those of us who know Christ as Savior, to one day be able to serve Him, whatever that means, I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. So incredible. Begin to think about it. No more curse. A perfect environment. The throne of God. A perfect government. Serving. Obedience. Perfected. Perfect communion, we shall see his face. Verse 4 of chapter 22. A perfect fulfillment. We will reign in verse 5 of 22 forever and ever. That's a little bit of something about it that we would see. And then let's think about not only some of the characteristics that we mentioned here, but the place itself, the description of the city, and think about what we might learn from that. Chapter 21 in verse 18 says, The building of the wall was like jasper, perhaps a diamond. The city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. And then the precious stones are listed. I'd like for us to think first about the value of our work 
and our service and our lives for the Lord. Now, I can't and wouldn't go to the stake for this, except to say, when we compare Scripture with Scripture, and one of the beauties of reading the Word of God is as you read in one place, it triggers your mind to think about something you've read in another place. So in the light of the New Testament, when I think of gold and precious stones, my mind goes to 1 Corinthians in chapter 3. Because we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that if we build on the foundation that has been laid, and other foundation can no man lay than Christ Jesus, that which is laid, you see. So there's a foundation. The apostles and prophets of the New Testament laid the foundation, the doctrine of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And then you and I who get saved, as we work with the Lord, workers together with Him, as we involve ourselves in service, in ministry, in whatever capacity it is, the Scripture says that if we build not according to the dictates of the world, not according to the wisdom of the world, which is foolishness with God, but according to the mind of Christ as it's been revealed in Scripture, as we work in that context with those parameters, our work produces something. Two categories there that are produced, if you remember. Wood, hay, straw, gold, silver, precious stones. And it's in that chapter that we read that one of the analogies that's used of the people of God in this age is of a temple. Peter says, we're living stones. It's not a physical temple like in Old Testament. It's a spiritual house that's made up of living stones. Paul says, as we labor on the foundation, we build gold, silver, precious stones. And he says this, that if any man produces that type of thing, it endures. It lasts. Let me put it to you this way. In your labor, in your service for the Lord Jesus, whatever capacity that may be, do you think you're only doing something that lasts for this life? Or will it carry on into eternity? Will perhaps some of the polished, living, precious stones that are part of that dwelling place be the very product of that which we have given and labored and done in service for the Lord Jesus? What a thought. The value of what we do carrying on into eternity. There's another thought along with that. It's going to have to back up just a touch to chapter 19. I didn't read verse 7 or verse 8. Chapter 19. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife hath made herself ready. You know, we have, uh, I won't, you folks from Minnesota, did you go to Testimony Part 2, the informal session? 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, these folks were in Minnesota. I was there a couple years ago. I think it was a couple year and a half, whatever. I can't remember. But anyway, at the conference in, in Twin Cities there. And so I did something a little bit different that I'd never done before. But every now and then, a couple of times, I've done my testimony part two, which is, to me, an amazing story, part two. And I won't go into that tomorrow. I'm not going to go into it all today, but I'll just give you a brief little scenario so that you know what I'm talking about. I had a very rapid transformation, not only in salvation, but in everything. I mean, I got saved in March of 1978, um, got released from prison in September of 1979, met my wife in the middle of September, the woman who's now my wife, in the middle of September 1979. And we were married after a very long engagement in November, November 15th of 1979. <laughs> yes. So it was, we were fast-tracked, you know what I mean? It was just rapid, everything, because, I mean, there wasn't much time left. The Lord was coming. Whatever we're going to do, we've got to serve the Lord, do it now, right? So uh, anyway, it's a, it's, a, it's a whole story of... The, of the whys and the hows and everything. So, you know, with a wedding, it takes, normally, a lot of planning. Well, um, we had known one another and been sort of engaged, I guess, for, well, almost a month. <laughs> and uh, so the planning was sort of, <laughs> you know, everything was, and borrowed dress for my wife, and uh, somebody made a cake, and all this different kind of things. And well, we had this one fellow who was a friend of ours who was a professional photographer. So he said, look, I'm going to take whatever pictures you want. You know, you just line people up. I'll take the pictures. I'll do that as under the Lord. Great. So, I mean, we had cousins and, you know, family and uh, all kind of folks, just all kind of pictures that were done. But I've got this one picture that I really treasure. It's my favorite picture of all the wedding pictures. He went in while my wife was looking in the mirror, fixing her hair. Why was she doing that? See, she was making herself beautiful, preparing herself for the bridegroom, for me. That's why she was beautifying herself, you see. In a sense, it wasn't so much for the crowd that was out there, was it? And you know, those of us who've stood there nervously waiting for that woman to walk down that aisle, our eyes were in one place, weren't they? And you see, when you think about what the Scripture says, his wife hath made herself ready, beautifying herself for the bridegroom. How is it that this is accomplished by the church, those that are blood-bought, born again, and saved? Well, it was granted to her that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. Where did it come from? The fine linen, your translation, or at least your margin may read, is the righteous acts of the saints. The very way 
in which this bride was adorned was produced by those things that she, the bride, had done out of love and devotion for the bridegroom. And it carried over into eternity as she presents herself to him. These are not, this is not righteousness, the righteousness of God that's only available by faith in Christ Jesus. These are the righteous acts, plural, of the saints, plural. What an amazing thing to think that as you and I are saved, those things we do out of love and devotion to the Lord Jesus will allow us in some way to be presented to Him, to be beautiful for the bridegroom. <laughs> what a fantastic thought to me, at least. And hopefully to you as well. The value of our experience. Chapter 21 and verse 12. The wall, great and high, had twelve gates. The twelve gates, twelve angels. The names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Israel also is called in Scripture, Jacob. <laughs> you talk about family dynamics. You talk about a reality show. Well, there's one. <laughs> Twelve boys. Ladies, how'd you like to have twelve boys? Wait, but it gets better. <laughs> twelve boys with four, at least four different biological mothers. <laughs> and twelve boys of which the father had a favorite mother, wife of all those women. And two sons by her that he favored more than the others which certainly didn't sit well with all the boys. <laughs> Try to keep that family together, not killing one another. And they almost didn't. But anyway, that's another story. So in heaven, there's a lot of things we wonder. What will that be like? What will that look like? But I'll tell you one thing, apparently, that we'll recognize, that there were 12 gates, and on those gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Jacob, of Israel. Now what's unique about that, and why I say it's the value of our experience, is when we begin to think of where those names came from. It was the women who named the boys. And the women named the boys out of the experience of God that they saw in their lives. So for what was a fairly... Not that it is miraculous, but a, a fairly common experience, particularly in that culture, the having of a child for a woman, that was a fairly basic, you know, kind of an everyday happening, so to speak. But God reached down and took something that those women saw of God in their experience, and they named those boys out of that. And God has taken that and emblazoned it across the gates of the city of the eternal dwelling place of the people of God. He took something out of those women's daily, regular experience and emblazoned it upon those gates 
eternally to be seen. Never think that your experience, however mundane you may consider it to be, what God is doing in your life, what He's doing in your daily experience, your daily work, your daily life for Him, don't think it doesn't count. You never know what God might emblazon up there for all to see, drawn from the very experience of life. The value of our suffering. Verse 21, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Every gate was one pearl. The street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. Pearls are different than gems. Pearls are a product of a living creature. And when that mollusk, whether it's a cultured pearl or a natural pearl, when that grit, when that irritant begins to cause pain to that mollusk, and it begins to secrete that mother-of-pearl solution to form a barrier against the pain, it forms a pearl. Pearls are the product of suffering. The twelve gates were twelve enormous pearls. There has been an enormous amount of suffering in this world. But it's not for nothing. Heaven is a place that recognizes suffering. As a matter of fact, the very government of heaven itself is based upon suffering. For it is the Lord Jesus who suffered like none has ever suffered before. And His rights, if you will, to the government of the universe are founded upon that suffering that He endured, man of sorrows, like no one has ever suffered before. And what has been produced through suffering? Well, you and I who are believers here are a product of His suffering. And heaven will be populated with host of peoples, the product of the very suffering of the Son of God on the cross of Calvary. But even our suffering, Peter says it like this, to those who are under the gun of Rome in that day and suffering incredible things, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And listen, the purification of the fire upon that gold producing a gold that was like transparent glass. It was so clear of any imperfection that it was like clear crystal glass. The value of our suffering. Oh, it's an important thing. God's people. God, give us a heart of compassion for His people who go through incredible things. And suffer a tremendous amount. But one day, the Scripture says that our suffering, that's for a present moment, a blip on the radar screen compared to eternity, though it doesn't seem like it when you're going through it, it will produce something. A, a sheer weight, an exceeding weight of glory will be produced through it. Think of the light of that city, which is the Lamb Himself illuminating that place, shining through the precious stones of the walls, shining through the, the gates of pearl that will enhance, in a sense, the very glory of God lighting that place. 
And then finally, the value of what we give him. In chapter 22, in verse 24, it says, The nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. The kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. Verse 26, They shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. <laughs> what could you bring into there possibly? What could you give that would have any value in that sense? You know, you're talking about a place that's lighted by the glory of God, and yet it says the kings of the earth bring their glory and their honor into it. I won't turn to the passage for sake of time, but back in 2 Samuel and Kings, you read about the Queen of Sheba. She decided to go visit Solomon, who at that time was one of the richest men who had ever lived. Brings to mind the question, what do you buy for the person who has everything? <laughs> you got to bring him a gift, right? What are you going to bring Solomon? I mean, and then if you bring him something, is he just going to say, you know, like you get a gift sometimes, oh, that's it's beautiful. And as soon as you leave, it's stuffed back in the closet somewhere in the back, and you hope you remember it if the people ever come again to set it out. <laughs> Among other things, she brought what the Scripture calls... Almug trees. I have no idea what an almug tree is. But Solomon didn't take them and say, oh, those are very nice. Let's go put those out there and we'll build some of the stables with those things. No, he took them and he fashioned instruments for the praise of God and things that enhanced the beauty of the house of God. <laughs> Whatever we have and give to the Lord no matter how to us it may seem, he's going to use it to enhance his own eternal glory. That's the kind of God who's revealed here. Well, that'll give us a little bit to meditate about. I'm just going to close as this book closed. I won't take the time to go over chapter 22 much except to say... It's one of the most unique chapters in all the Word of God. It's one of the most unique verses in all the Word of God. When you come to verse 16, it's almost as if the Lord Jesus says to John, let me have the pen for a moment. For it's written in the first person. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. Again, showing it's for us for now. Three times you have his testimony, verse 16, verse 18, and verse 20. And don't you love it that the character of God is again revealed in this book? Here you are at the end of a book filled with judgments, filled with things that are going to happen, filled with other kind of things. But the Spirit and the Bride still say, come. And let him that hears say, come. And let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will... Let him take of the water of life freely. There's the character of God revealed. He still says to you today, come and take the water of life freely. Verse 20, he which testifieth these things saith, surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Father, those of us who are saved can certainly say, even so, come, 
Lord Jesus. To those who are not saved, we would reiterate your words to them, the Lord's words to them. Let whosoever will take of the water of life freely. Even today, that invitation is still open. We give you thanks in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.